you've read your diaries, you'll see that today we're looking at the Kingdom of God. It's our third session on the Kingdom of God. In the first two sessions, we've seen something which is um, distinct about the Kingdom of God. And the way we've tackled those two first ones, the first one, we looked at the Kingdom of God is not um, time-based, but eternal. And the second one, we looked at the idea that it's not geographical, but covering all creation. Therefore, we had a, a not this, but a that. That's often done in the Bible. If you think about um, the way in which the Bible handles a lot of topics, it does them by comparison, one thing with another. So, so if we think about uh, light and dark, swords and plowshares. Okay, so it's, there's a lot of dualism going on to make a point because we handle that better we tend to think about things as being not one thing but another by and it helps us in understanding well this, this morning you don't get that benefit this morning you could do i suppose but this morning's topic is about the kingdom of god and the fact that it's within us but i just thought it'd be good to do a, a, a bit of a recap keith took us through some verses and reminded us about the eternal perspective that we need to have when we consider the kingdom of God. And he did that very practically because he talked about it in terms of how important it is for us as a people to have a knowledge of um, the kingdom of God as it applies in our lives and bringing whatever situation we're in, whether it be sickness or, or joy, into the context of this is a part of the eternal. This is a part of the eternal perspective of, of God's plan for his world. So when we're facing challenges, just putting it in that context. And he took us particularly, he finished up in a, in a passage in Revelation. Revelation 4, I think, is it? Yep. Um, which goes like this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. There's a song we do that in, isn't there? I've forgotten what it is, but it, there's a good song that does that. So I was thinking about this a bit more and saying, thinking to myself, it's a who was. How do we handle the who was? The God who was. Well, we've been doing that really well as a church, the who was, the God who was, in our testimony. I'm talking about practically now, applying it. Testimony is an example of what God has been to us, isn't it? Yeah? And is. What do we need to apply when we talk about how God is at work in our lives? We need to apply faith. Faith is what's needed in that situation. And is to come hope. So in each situation we apply uh, these things to it. The God who was and is and is to come. We believe then that God's sovereign dynamic rule, his kingdom extends through all time. And I would add outside of time as well. In the second session, we looked at, uh, not, this was not long before Christmas, uh, the geographical extent of God's kingdom and discovered that God had a clear plan for a kingdom and not for an empire. Do you remember me looking at that whole thing about Daniel's statue and then we looked at all those different empires and how the word em um, uh, empire comes from the con concept of um, command or conquest 
And that Jesus, the the Lord God, has a, a plan for a kingdom, not an empire. He wants to see submission and consent, not command and conquest. Making sense? Good. So, having agreed together that the kingdom rule of God is destined to fill all of time and all of space, do you know what? I've identified a small challenge to that. All of time and all of space. Do you know what the problem is? Me. That little bit of time and space that is me is the problem. And the little bit of time and space that is you. And I want to look today a bit at that. So, one of the questions for the groups, by the way, might be, having had the reminders, can you list two or three things that were a help or revelation to you from the first two sessions? And uh, there'll be some other questions uh, as well as we go along. You know, the challenge of you and me was the very thing that Jesus came into the world to address, wasn't it? It's all very well, the plan for all of time and all of space. But in giving man free will, Father faced the challenge of people who turned from him and did not submit their lives to his kingdom. Others before Jesus had attempted to deal with the problem, and if you think about the way in which the history of Israel is dotted with people who are um, trying to follow God's way and follow God's rule, it culminates really with a bunch of people who, um, just as Jesus was coming on the scene, were also coming, uh, having their way a bit and uh, doing quite well. And that was a bunch of people called the Pharisees. They were making their attempt to make the blueprint of God's law work. Because all down the ages, different prophets and kings and people had taken that blueprint and attempted to impose it upon their lives with pretty disastrous consequences for the most part. People just couldn't live up to it. But the Pharisees, you know, they get a bit of a bad name, don't they? In fact, the name, the Pharisee name, has come to have a kind of a meaning for hypocrite. We say something as somebody's being a Pharisee, you Pharisee, or you talk about people being Pharisaical. It's a kind of another word for being hypocritical. The word Pharisee itself actually means separate, separated. And let's just revisit them. Can I reinvent the Pharisees for a minute with a little bit more grace towards them and remind you of three particular Pharisees who were pretty good guys, actually. Anybody think of a Pharisee who was a pretty good guy? Nicodemus. Another one? Joseph of Arimathea. And a third? Saul. Eventually. (laughs) Sorry? Gamaliel. Yes, in in Acts. So there's four. We'll just about give Keith his Saul. But yes... These Pharisees. In fact, you know what strikes me about the three I've mentioned that, 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 that we, we actually stuck with in terms of Nicodemus, Gamaliel, and Joseph of Arimathea? What marks them out as being different, particularly? What was their, what's their role? Each, per, each one of them, what did they do? 
they were willing to listen to Jesus, that's right. I felt that it was significant to the extent that, okay, Nicodemus went at night. All right, okay, so he didn't come out, you know, good and clear. But he must have done subsequently. Joseph of Arimathea went publicly to claim the body of Jesus. Gamaliel stood up publicly and defended the disciples. These were Pharisees, guys. Which of the disciples had that kind of courage? Outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. Outside of Pentecost. I don't think they did, really. So I was struck by those particular Pharisees. But, you know, many of them, although they did live godly lives, Jesus came along and he took the kind of whole idea of the Pharisaical way of doing things, trying to live very, very strict, pure, law-directed lives. They'd separate themselves out into kind of community. And they would try... um, to do that and uh, in um, you see where it was Matthew 5 if you go to Matthew 5 for a second we'll see what Jesus' response to it's verse 17 this is, this is challenging stuff alright but we, when, we, when we're this side of the resurrection when we're this side of grace He actually realized where Jesus was going with this. Listen to this. He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Wow, listen to this one. I tell you the truth. This is one of those verilies. Jesus likes using this expression. It's one of I I I, if I'm teaching, I tend to use the word basically all all the time. Keep saying basically. What Jesus did a lot, he said, I tell you the truth a lot. It's all through his teaching. He says this, I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness yes, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I've actually spoken on this before a long time ago and I remember likening it to one of those hurdle races. You know the Pharisees, they kept doing this with the bar. They kept doing this. And they kept doing this with the bar. And people just couldn't do it. What did Jesus do? He came and he put the bar up there. Totally impossible. The whole point was he was saying, yes, it is impossible. Outside of grace, it is impossible. You can't do it. That was the whole point. There needed to be another way. And that's why Jesus came. And Jesus was teaching this stuff, and it suddenly came to a particular Pharisee, a guy called Nicodemus. And he was struggling with this stuff. And he was thinking about it. And he said, I'm going to talk to him. You know, I like Nicodemus. 
You know, uh, we'll see more of that in a second, but um, let's go to John 3. Um, There is no excuse for you switching off during this session just because it's John 3. John 3, perhaps one of the most familiar passages in the Bible. We've got here some verses just before. I want to go just before. Okay, in chapter 2, at the very end, verse 23, it says this. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But this is, this is a bit, I don't think I've seen this bit before, probably because of the prominence of the following chapter. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. He knew what was in a man. Here's Jesus, the perfect physician, making his diagnosis. He knew what the problem was at the core of man. He knew that man couldn't make it. He knew that man failed. That man was basically, at his core, unable to please God. Let's read now John 3, 1 to 21. All right, it's quite a long passage. You okay? Yeah. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. There it is again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. (laughs) We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if, you speak, if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. 
Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives in by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what he has done has been done through God. Whoa! Astonishing, astonishing piece of teaching, isn't it? Absolutely incredible. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news. Given to who? Who was he? Nicodemus. Teacher of Israel. Came in the middle of the night. Spoke to him and said, We've seen, I've seen your teachings, Jesus. We know you're a teacher who's come from God. He calls him a teacher. Who, who was he? His identity. He was clearly somebody of some intellectual standing. He was bright, wasn't he? He'd reached a, a good position in Israel. Nicodemus comes to him. But he hasn't got that courage to come um, during the daytime. He was at risk doing so. He was still at risk doing so at night. So let's just not, you know, wipe him out completely from our respect. Because he has come. And it's a genuine inquiry. Isn't that great, really, that he thought to himself, I've got to go and find this out for myself. All these other guys around me are just going with the flow of, of condemning Jesus. But I'm going to go and find out for myself. And Jesus treated that inquiry with respect. How do we know about this conversation? Well, some of you are going to turn around and say, well, it seems as if the disciples were there as well, so maybe John was there and he wrote it down. But we don't know that. It could have been that we got this account because Nicodemus told John. Yeah? It is possible that that was the way it done. I mean, it was at night. The rest of them could have been asleep. We don't really know, but I like the idea that it, it was a little conversation between the two of them. After all, it was a very personal and very in-depth two-way conversation. Why does Jesus use that term, truly, I tell you? He does it because he's so used to people blubbling on. It's one of the problems we all face when teaching. I'm facing it now. You know, trying to keep people's attention when, you know, they've heard sermon after sermon after sermon. Jesus did it. By saying, look, listen, this is true. And he did it to try and keep people and say, there's a, there's a passage in John where he talks about, if it were not so, I would have told you. Again, it's one of those phrases he uses to, to say, please listen to this, this is true. And this is what he does with Nicodemus. He says, come on, Nicodemus, really, this is true stuff here. Take it in carefully. I love this um, past bit where he says, no one can see. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. I love that. No one can see it. I think it's bigger than this, obviously, because Jesus is talking about spiritual stuff. So when we think about no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again, I want to take the word see and make it bigger than the word we use with our eyes. Because what we have to do with that word is say, okay, what does it mean? It means perceive, grasp, take hold of, 
understand. No one can see. Because we use it, don't we? We say, do you see? No, it's a common expression, isn't it? No one will see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Unless he is born again. Wow. That's a very, very strange expression. And it's a fantastically honest exchange, isn't it, between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus reminds me a bit of Jeremy Paxman in this particular moment on Newsnight. Jeremy Paxman is an interviewer who won't let go, will he? And he's brutally honest. Brutally honest. And I love Nicodemus' brutal honesty. You know, so often through the scriptures, when we hear Jesus speaking, we get this image of the disciples sort of sitting there going... <laughs> and they haven't a clue what's going on. And sometimes one of them has the guts to say, uh, can you explain my parable, please? But here is, here is the Jeremy Paxman of the, the, of the Jewish um, Pharisees coming and saying, what? What do you mean, ha- you know, be born again? And Jesus goes on to explain that flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. There's something that has to take place inside of people which is beyond the... It has to be beyond that, in there, at a level beyond. And how do we get there? What's the, what's the method by which we empl- we, that we employ to get there? faith. We have to. And for you guys, so many of you, you've, you've, you've done that. You've made that step. And sometimes when we talk about um, health and healing and we say, Lord, um, we want to come in faith and pray and believe for healing for that person. Do remember that one of the greatest steps of faith you ever made has already happened to you. It's already done. You chose to make that step of faith and believe that your life moved from one kingdom into another kingdom. Passed from one realm into another. It's a hard truth to believe. It's not easy. Jesus likens it, you know, it's saying, he actually uses that thing we often do. We talk about the wind blowing. Sometimes I used to talk to people who didn't believe about electricity. You've done that one as well, haven't you? You switch the switch on and you get light. Well, hang on, how does that work? What's electricity? It's like the spirit. It's like wind as well, isn't it? You see the effect, but you don't see the thing itself. Just because we don't see the thing doesn't mean to say it doesn't exist. Spirit. There's something going on inside us when we take that step of faith. Nicodemus had seen the miracles. And uh, Jesus criticizes him then. That's the point when Jesus actually gets critical of him. He says that thing about um, being a teacher of the law. You don't understand these things as a teacher. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things. You see, the problem was Nicodemus had come to Jesus and and he didn't really understand even the miracle stuff. He he wanted to know what was going on about that. (laughs) Typically, Jesus swept all that to one side and said, that's not the issue. 
The issue isn't about the miracles. The issue is about what's going on in your heart, in your heart, and yours, and yours. It's something about the kingdom of God inside of us. But Nicodemus, if you don't understand what's going on in the, the miracles, how can you possibly hope to understand the thing of the Spirit being born again? But we do get this little hope in this conversation because we have the record of Nicodemus going. And I believe, and many Christians believe, that Nicodemus did make that step of faith. He did say, yes, I believe. But at that moment, when we say yes to God, we do step from one kingdom to another, from one reality to another, we become different people. Now, I'm, I'm aware that around this room, as far as I know, most people, if not all, have made a prayer of commitment at some stage to God. But I was thinking to myself, we ought to be prepared to pray a prayer. The prayer that brought us into the kingdom. To exercise that faith time and time again. To recommit our lives. And if you've never asked God to change your life like that, we can do it right now. <clears throat> Set off on a journey that will mean you get to know Jesus more and more each day. Leaving the past with all its sin and all its hurts and all that unforgiveness, all that bitterness, and the guilt. Maybe you don't feel any of those things. But still, you need to get closer to God. Those of us who've prayed this prayer before can do so again, renewing your commitment to follow him. So what I want to do is we're going to pray the prayer. I'm going to pause for a moment, because I'm, you know what I'm going to ask you to pray. And you don't do it lightly. So we're going to pause a moment. And I'm going to ask you to repeat just like they would at a campaign or whatever. We're going to do it that way. God spoke to me and said, why not, Tim? And I said, okay, God, why not? So let's pray. If we do it out loud, that's confessing your faith isn't it so what I'm going to do is you can repeat after me each line I'm going to do it this way so here we go God at this moment even with my knowledge of you as small as it is I so long to follow you So I turn my back on all that is past. Back on all that is past. And ask you to forgive me for every sin. And I ask you, Jesus, to come into my life. To lead me and guide me. By your, Holy Spirit. by your Holy Spirit. I commit to following you, I commit to you. all the days of my life. Amen.
But it is an amazing thing to pray that prayer. And I'd ask you that if if you have prayed that prayer and realised, actually, I don't think I've ever really prayed that quite in that way before. There's something that's happened in me as I've prayed it. Then do talk to me. Also, if you guys have prayed it and you know that actually there was something in the middle of there, when you got to the, I want to leave that stuff behind, there was suddenly a realisation that dropped into you that I know what that is, that I want to leave that behind. Then again, if there's something that you need to deal with, there's something that you need to share, that you need help with getting through, then do talk to me, or talk to Keith, or to Brian, and we'll pray with you afterwards. And let's deal with this stuff, and get beyond it, and move on with God. You've passed from one kingdom into another. Could you turn, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter 2. We dabbled in this last week, actually. I I found myself back there and thought, oh, look, here I am again. 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. That's dualism again. Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people belonging to God. You know, the expression that particularly grabbed me is a racial one, because it says there, a holy nation. Holy nation. The word nation is used there is the word ethnos, meaning race. A a, a people. We're We're a distinct people with distinct characteristics, a distinct nationality. We have a national dress and national food and national clothes and a national anthem and a passport because we are part of the holy nation. And in a minute, I want to propose to you what that national food and drink and pastime and anthem and all of those things is because we are a holy nation. By all means, we can still enjoy. Don't get me wrong, I'm not starting to... We kind of abscond our responsibilities to Her Britannic Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and all her dominions. I'm saying to us, look, yes, we are British, or many of us are. Um, Not all of us. Yep, not all of us. But most of us are. And we have... May have British passports or not. But... We have to remember what our real passport says. 
that we're citizens of what? The kingdom of God. And it's such an important distinction that we, we get our heads into that. Because it's so easy to be led down the route which takes us in other places. There are plenty of other kingdoms you can be part of. Yeah, okay, the national kingdom of Great Britain is one of them, but what about other kingdoms? Kingdoms of following after this or following after that. What is this language of the kingdom then? Well, if I go to 1 Corinthians 13, you'll not be surprised to hear me say that the language of the kingdom of God is love. Yes, 1 Corinthians 13. Oh, good. If I speak... <laughs> no, I won't do it. <laughs> she guessed. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am like a... No, because <laughs> I'm like a booming gong or a clashing cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when, and this is important for in a minute, okay? But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is Excellent. The language of the kingdom is love. With the kingdom of God within us, we are prompted to acts of love. Love for God, love for one another, and love for the lost. I'd like to show you um, a short, very short two-minute video. We've just about got time to do this. Two minutes, honest. Um, which is it's going to be a bit of a surprise to you. Do you know what was distinctive in that, those testimonies? Did you see it? Did you see that what was distinctive all through? It was wonderful, wasn't it? Did you see it? The word love over and over and over again. Actually, we were challenged this morning in our prayer time about love and how we needed not... And I'm so grateful to God for the Holy Spirit provocation in that prayer this morning because it told me, yep, you can share about the love of the church, Tim, but don't you dare be complacent about it. Not for one minute, one second, can we take any of it for granted. There is more. We need to go deeper. We need to learn the lessons of our mistakes. Because we do make mistakes, guys. We make mistakes, and we have even recently, in, in the way in which we dealt with each other, some of us. 
We've made mistakes and we've had to ask for forgiveness and say we're sorry. Uh, and I, I just wanted to give a bit of guidance and then I'm going to stop because um, I'm running out of time, aren't I? But I w- you see, there's a danger that this lang- language of love can sound as if it doesn't have the strength it needs to survive. You know, that it, it sounds a bit like, um, in the words of a famous comedy show, it's a kind of a wishy-washy, namby-pamby, um, you know, kind of love. It's not. It's strong. It's like clear water, refreshing and honest. That's what true love is. It builds up, not presses down. It releases, encourages, and affirms. And it's inclusive, uh, welcoming all, never, ever exclusive. And, come on, you're sitting there and you're thinking, "Mm, yeah, there may be little sharp bits in your head now thinking, yeah, but it's not always been like that for me with that situation and that situation. What do we do about this stuff? When we fail to live up to that standard, what then? Well, what happens is, it's very like the language, actually. When When we use a language... We, and we, start, we stop using the language, we start to fail to communicate. It's like somebody starts to use French instead of English. You, go, huh? you start not to understand. You might pick up the odd word, but if we stop using the language of love, the first thing that tends to go is we stop believing the best about each other. That's the first thing that happens. It starts to undermine our belief in the best. Then we stop understanding each other. And then what happens is we stop speaking to each other, and then the worst bit is we start speaking about each other to other people. So there's a progression there, and we need to stop that. Jesus provides us with some wonderful help in this area. He said this in Matthew 18, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you, if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, treat him as if you would a pagan or a tax collector. Who knows about Domestos? What does Domestos do? 99% of all known germs. Verse 15 of Matthew 18 kills 99.9% of all known difficulties. When Jesus said, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. 99.9%. Now, verse 16 deals with almost every other. And then verse 16, when it gets a bit harsh, well, that's so rare. Few of us in this church have seen it happen a few times, but it's very rare. So as a model, use it. Let's use it together. Let's learn the lessons. You know, I love that verse 17 still, because even though it's got that horrible bit about putting them out, you know, Jesus still loved them. What did we know? Jesus loved the pagans and the tax collectors, didn't he? And um, there's a... Yeah, I'm going to... A fantastic example of the way in which the language of love can woo back even a pagan. In the Times, on January the 27th, an atheist, a very strict atheist, a very devout atheist called Matthew Paris, who writes in the Times, he was a conservative MP, 
He constantly goes on about religion and how Christians are terrible and all this kind of thing. He wrote this. Before Christmas, I returned after 45 years to the country that as a boy I knew as Nyasaland. Now it's Malawi. And the Times Christmas Appeal includes a small British charity working there. Pumpaid helps rural communities to install a simple pump, letting people keep their village wells sealed and clean. I went to see this work. It inspired me, renewing my flagging faith in development charities. But traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief too, one I've been trying to banish all my life, but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular non-governmental organizations government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can imagine, the practical work of mission churches in Africa, It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is part of the package. But Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write. And only the severest kind of atheist could see a mission hospital or a school and say the world would be a better place without it. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine. But what counted was the help, but not the faith. But this doesn't fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It is also transferred into his flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely and which I cannot help observing. First then, the observation. We had friends who were missionaries and as a child I stayed often with them. I also stayed alone with my little brother in a traditional rural African village. In the city, we had working for us Africans who had converted and who were strong believers. The Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. Since December the 27th, this article has remained at the top of the articles read on Times Online and has received the most comments of any article since then, over 235 written responses. The kingdom of God is within us, and boy, does the world need it. 